2: Today, we've got some good news about one of the worst voter suppression bills in the country. I interviewed Beto O'Rourke about the moves being made to fix the problems from 2020 when certain Texas counties actually swung to the right, and whether a run for governor is in the works. And I chat with the co-founder and co-executive director of Indivisible, Leah Greenberg, about a major new effort that the group just launched. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen, and you're listening to No Lie. So last week we spoke about Texas's voter suppression bill SB7, and I interviewed a member of the Texas State House, James Talarico. And we're going to give you an update about that, because the last thing we left off on was James basically saying that while he was proud that he and his colleagues were able to stave off this bill for now, that it was unlikely they'd be able to kill the bill entirely if Republicans bring it up again in the special session promised by Governor Abbott. But then he said this.
1: Well, you know, thanks to people like you, we are uh, we are getting a national spotlight on Texas. Uh, Everyone in the country is talking about SB 7 and the Republicans' attempts to, to really destroy representative democracy as we know it. And, and that kind of spotlight, that kind of attention, I think will force Republicans back to the negotiating table. And hopefully, you know, I, I do think we're going to pass some type of voter suppression bill. But as Texas Democrats, our goal is to limit the damage that this bill will do to to our Democratic system. Um, but but in particular, the damage it can do to vulnerable communities across our state, in particular, our black and brown communities. So. Um, I'm hopeful that that this renewed attention, this this controversy that has that has kind of spread across the the nation, across the world, will allow us to negotiate a much better version of this bill in the special session.
2: That the spotlight in and of itself was the goal. And that was validated when Republicans almost instantly backed off from the 1 p.m. Sunday voting ban, all of a sudden claiming uh, that it was a typo and that they meant to write 11 a.m., even though I'm not sure how you can accidentally get the numbers wrong and accidentally write p.m. instead of a.m. Also, small issue of the fact that they literally defended that time while debating the bill, meaning that it was never a typo, but even they knew that it was indefensible enough that they had to drop it, and so they did. And then after that, even better news, one of the single most dangerous parts of any bill, Republicans dropped another provision that would allow judges in Texas to void an election, even if there were only thin allegations of fraud. In other words, Republicans wouldn't even have to prove fraud to have an election be overturned. A provision so egregious that no Republican would even admit to putting it in the bill. It wasn't in the House or the Senate versions. It was added in some last-ditch effort. And now, on top of all of that, one of the sponsors of the bill is actually calling that provision horrendous. This guy, Republican Travis Clardy, said, quote, There was zero appetite or intent or willingness to create some low bar where a single judge can overturn the results of an election. That would be horrendous policy, and it would never be healthy for the democracy. Yeah. It wouldn't. And if it weren't for the Texas Democrats who literally walked off the floor, that would be the law. Like, imagine an arsonist who just doused an entire building in gasoline, still holding the gasoline can, saying, yeah, setting this building on fire would have been really bad for this neighborhood's well-being. Yeah, Travis, you're right. (laughs) Great observation, man. And all of this happened in the last week. Who's to say uh, uh, what other typos they'll find? Who's to say what other horrendous provisions they'll scrap? And so the point of this is to show how, you know, it might feel like a lot of doom and gloom and just us screaming into the ether, but this pressure works. And if it wasn't for the fact that everyone knew what was happening in Texas, we'd still have that provision limiting Sunday voting. We'd still have that provision allowing a single judge to undo the election results. And that's not to say that SB7 passing is a sure thing, because it's not. But at the very least, if it does pass, it's a hell of a lot less horrific than it was before. And that's owed in part to the fact that people are paying attention. So I get that there's a lot of bad news, but there are wins in here too, and we should take them where we can get them. I've been saying for weeks that SB7 is the most dangerous voter suppression bill in the country, but now the most dangerous parts of the most dangerous bill are gone. That's a win, and it's something we should be proud of. Still coming up, I chat with Indivisible co-founder and co-executive director Leah Greenberg about an awesome new campaign being rolled out, but first, my interview with Beto O'Rourke. Today we've got Beto O'Rourke, thanks for coming back on.
3: Hey, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm transmitting from Denton, Texas, where we just had a big community conversation here last night on democracy and voting rights. We had about uh, 800 people who came out, which is a a great showing for something that's not necessarily on the ballot and not connected to a candidate or a campaign, but obviously people care about. So um, great event last night. Now we're going into South Dallas to hold a similar event in that part of the community.
2: Well, you know, you were you were the first elected official that I had on to this podcast. We just celebrated our one year anniversary, and actually, the date that I had you on was June eighth, twenty twenty. So by the time that this episode's released, it'll be almost a year ago to the day. So, you know, thank you for 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 supporting me back then, and and for coming back on now.
3: Happy anniversary!
2: Uh, thanks. So let's let's jump in here. Now we've got this issue of Joe Manchin now coming out against the For the People Act, and so you know I've been oscillating between. Being outraged because his decision is almost unilaterally helping Republicans try and destroy democracy, and trying to reconcile that with the fact that you know he's a Democrat from maybe the reddest state in the country. And so, what's your take on this issue, and and what would be your message to Joe Manchin?
3: Look, I'm grateful for the fact that Senator Manchin supported the For the People Act. I believe he was a co-sponsor of it in 2019. I know that he supports the principle of voting rights, and he wants to make sure that this democracy that so many men and women have put their lives on the line for, and so many of them have lost their lives in service to this country, and defending our Constitution, and this democracy of, by, and for the people. I know that he wants to do the right thing. And I also know that he's compelled by the idea of bipartisanship and finding that common ground. And and frankly, I I think that's a virtue. I I know it's probably an unpopular one in both of our parties. But I'm grateful for the fact that he has tried to pursue that. I'm holding out the hope that after he exhausts uh, every avenue of bipartisanship, and, and let's hope on one of those, he finds those 10 Republican votes necessary to get voting rights passed. But should he not, I would love for him to come back, and I would love for all of us to welcome him back into the fold support of the For the People Act. and. What I know Senator Manchin knows, and Brian, I know you know this as well major civil rights and voting rights legislation is always a a tough process to pass and very rarely has been done on a bipartisan basis. The 14th Amendment was passed on a party line vote. The 15th Amendment to the United States Constitution after the Civil War was passed on a party line vote. It may very well be that for the people, which will guarantee and expand voting rights in this country, most significant piece of voting rights legislation since the 1965 Voting Rights Act, coming at a time that democracy is under attack, unlike any time in American history, it might require a party line vote. And so, for, for those who are despairing over Senator Manchin's recent statements that he won't support this and he won't uh, he won't abolish or amend the filibuster, this happens all the time in tough negotiations, in tough situations. One party will walk away from the table. They'll tear up the contract. Uh, your partner might leave the, the house and say they're never coming back. And then over time, you reconcile, you find that common ground again, and you maybe compromise, get to a consensus position, and you move forward. And I'm hoping that we can do that with with Senator Manchin. And you know, there's a lot of hope resting on him, but there's one other important person, Brian, that I don't think we bring into this conversation often enough, and that's President Joe Biden. You know, he said he'll sign this. I know he believes in this. He's fought for it during his Senate career as Vice President of the United States, and now as President. He said that this is one of the most important issues before us, but I'd love to see him do more. I'd love for him to bring the country together in a national speech and say, you know, men and women of America, um, voting rights are under attack in 47 different states, 360 pieces of legislation. The Citadel of Democracy, our United States Capitol, was violently attacked on the 6th of January. And tens of millions of our fellow Americans believe in a big lie that the 2020 election was fraudulent, even though Donald Trump's own Secretary of Homeland Security called it the, the safest and most secure election in American history. People of America, Republicans and Democrats, let's come together to secure our democracy and to pass voting rights. We need that speech right now. Uh, we need that leadership from Joe Biden. And I think. That will do a lot to help Joe Manchin get to the right place. Well,
2: you know, building on that, uh, Texas Democrats in the state house had inspired, you know, the whole party last week when they walked out to deprive the chamber of a quorum and killed SB 7, which is the Texas Republicans own voter suppression law. Now, Governor Abbott had promised to bring SB 7 up again for a vote in a special legislative session. Uh, I interviewed a member of the Texas state house, James Tellerico, last week, and he did mention that ultimately uh, they would be unable to kill SB seven when it comes back up for a vote. So, I guess the question is, what's the move here? How do we stop what would arguably be the most severe voter suppression law in the country from taking hold? I
3: think the the metaphor or the analogy that that comes to mind in answering your question is, we're, we're in this this battle, this war for democracy across many fronts. I mentioned there's 47 state legislatures that are considering or have passed voter suppression legislation. One of the the major fronts in this battle is Texas, which is already the toughest state in which to vote. Our voter ID laws, our racial gerrymander, the hundreds of polling place closures concentrated in Black and Latino neighborhoods. It's already made it the toughest place in America to be able to exercise your right to participate in this democracy. And they tried to make it a lot harder in the regular session of the Texas legislature. But James Tallarico, Jessica Gonzalez, Michelle Beckley, these amazing Texas House Democrats who Brian were in the minority were able to stop it and their ability to frustrate the Republicans effort to clamp down on democracy in Texas purchased us some time to expand the fight on other fronts including most importantly in the US Senate but representative Talarico is absolutely right if we cannot get the Senate Democrats who in contrast to the Texas Democrats are in the majority to do their job and to pass this voting rights legislation known as the For the People Act, or H.R. 1 and Senate Bill 1, then this sacrifice, this struggle, this victory in Texas will be for naught. And so it's imperative that over the month of June, which may be the month that we have before the legislature is called back into a special session, that we make the most of it. And that's why you have me and many others traveling this state, rallying people, to the cause of democracy and voting rights, asking them to pick up the phone and not waste their breath on Senators Cruz or Cornyn, but to go right to the White House, to the most powerful person on planet Earth, Joe Biden, and ask him to use that extraordinary power to bring democracy home to this, to this country. So we, we, we've had this reprieve in, in the fight for a moment here in Texas, and now we've got to focus all of our force on the US Senate and on the President, they've got to come through for us at this moment.
2: Now speaking of Texas Governor Greg Abbott, I know you won't say whether you're running for governor or not, but is there anything that would prevent you from running for governor of Texas?
3: This fight that we're in right now for for voting rights in Texas, for democracy in Texas is the most important thing that I can think to do. Um, as I hope I just made the case that our democracy's on the line. And the window of time within which we could save it is quickly closing. And so there should really be no other consideration, I hope, for any of us other than doing that. And on this question of, of running for governor, for me or anyone else, I don't know that it will matter if we fundamentally lose the right to vote in, in this state. I, I think the, the odds become that much longer, um, the, the playing field that less even. Um, the odds that much more stacked, the game that much more rigged. Uh, we, we've got to make sure that we have free and fair elections, and then when we mount campaigns and support candidates, we know in good faith that we have a shot at at winning at the end of the day. And especially in Texas, especially in Georgia, we're on the eve of her 2018 campaign. Stacey Abrams was witness to the purging of hundreds of thousands of voters from those rolls. Um, they just passed and signed into law under a painting of a plantation, no less, some of the most restrictive voter suppression legislation in in the country. So we need to win this fight. We, we absolutely must win this fight. Uh, it is it is existential. Not for Democrats, by the way, it is existential for democracy. So let's see this through. And then, if there is some other capacity in which I can serve, either as a candidate. Or supporting great candidates, uh, I'm all in. I'm I'm in for the distance for
2: Texas. Great. Uh, well, a lot of the work that you do does intersect with the work that Stacey Abrams did in Georgia. But you know, in this last election, whereas Georgia went blue, Texas hit some some snags. So, what's being done to rectify the issues in Texas, especially with the Latino population uh, and that that Latino vote actually swinging to the right in places like South Texas and the Rio Grande Valley?
3: Yeah, a couple of things. One. Really important for all of us to remember that this is a state of 30 million people. And so to put it in relative context, on the first day of early voting in 2020, as many people voted in Harris County, where Houston is, as voted in the entire state of Georgia. So our 254 counties, our extraordinarily diverse population, uh, geographic and otherwise, requires a monumental effort and investment if we're going to produce similar results to those that we saw in Georgia in 2020 and in those amazing Senate wins in, in 2021. But a lesson that we can pull from the example that Stacey Abrams and the New Georgia Project, Fair Fight, and so many other grassroots groups set, is this. You know, Stacey reminds us that her goal was not so much to convince someone to vote for a Democrat, but to convince a Georgia voter to vote at all after decades, generations of voter suppression, that is no small feat. And she and others were able to pull that off. And I think that's the secret of so much of their success. Here in Texas, Brian, this is um, hard to believe, but in 2020, the most important election of our lives, perhaps one of, if not the most important elections in the life of this country, 7 million eligible Texans did not vote. 7 million did not vote. So they'll tell you it's a red state, we know it's a non-voting state, convincing or listening to those 7 million Texans as to why they did not vote and helping them to come to a conclusion that voting actually matters, that their voice actually counts, and that we're listening to them is the game. It, it's, it's how we do this if we have free and fair elections to begin with. And so that's why you see Powered by People, our organization. It's why you see the Texas Democratic Party. It's why you see MOVE, all all these amazing organizations in this state. The Texas Organizing Project is another one out there now in 2021, not waiting for 2022, talking to and most importantly, listening to voters to bring them out. So I, I think that is a really important example that Stacey Abrams and others have set in Arizona, in Georgia, in states where we saw significant success in 2020. Uh, We've been working on this, many of us, for many years in Texas. We're getting a little bit closer every election cycle. We need to bring it through in 2022 and in 2024. Take some time, take some effort. And and if you're you're watching this and you're interested and you want to be part of this fight, join us at Powered by People. It's poweredxpeople.org, and we'll put you to work. Certainly, if you're in Texas, we'll have you knocking on doors. If you're outside of the state and you want to help us, We'll put you on the phones and we'll have you texting. Um, there's a way to help out in Texas, and we'd love to have your support to do it.
2: Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up Powered by People. And before you go, I do want to let you know that about a month ago, I started the Don't Be a Mitch Fund. Uh, that was to raise money for voter outreach and voter registration organizations. In the eight states with the closest Senate races in 2022, and the goal was to focus now on getting people educated and engaged and registered. You know, basically to build the foundation now, so that we're not just you know shelling out cash for attack ads in September, October, and election year. And so I partnered with a lot of outstanding organizations: the New Georgia Project, uh, Action Fund, Pennsylvania Stands Up, Black Leaders Organizing Communities, or Block in Wisconsin, Florida Rising, and a number more. Now I'm going to keep this fund going until it's time to vote in 2022, but. The goal was that if we could hit $100,000 in the first month, that I would add a new partner. And as of today, just a month into this fund, uh, we've exceeded that $100,000. We've actually raised more than $250,000, and that was thanks to the amazing people watching and listening right now. So I'm going to keep my word, and I'm going to be adding a new organization uh, to this fund, and that will be your organization, Powered by People. The work you do is beyond inspiring it's what i wish we had in all 50 states and so you know i'm i'm thrilled to be able to spend the next year and a half helping support the work you do in texas
3: brian that's amazing um unexpected and such (laughs) an awesome surprise and so thank you to you but but also obviously thank you to those who follow you and watch you and and take your guidance as gospel um, because they're the ones who are funding this these great campaigns and grassroots efforts in other states, and now it sounds like powered by people here in Texas. I'll I'll make this commitment to you and to your viewers. We will make the most of of what you contribute and put into the effort. Um, We have traveled uh, just over the last six days to to eight different communities to register voters, to bring people into this fight for democracy and voting rights, and we're not going to the bluest of places, uh, at least not yet. We've been traveling to some of the reddest counties on planet Earth. And we've had folks come out in the hundreds who want to be part of this effort and this fight. And your donations will support them as they become volunteer deputy registrars to to get people onto the voter rolls. Your support will help us to back these state legislators who are fighting the good fight here in Texas. And your support will help us to win elections in 2022, 2024, and beyond. So, Brian, I cannot thank you enough.
2: Of course. Well, well we're, we're happy to do it. So Beto, I know that you're, you you got to get back on the road here. So thank you again for taking the time. I appreciate it. It's always great talking to you. Grateful. Likewise. Thanks again to Beto O'Rourke. Now I'm joined by Leah Greenberg, the co-founder and co-executive director of Indivisible. Thanks for coming on the chat.
0: Great to be here.
2: So I'm sure everyone's heard about Indivisible, but give me the elevator pitch for those who haven't.
0: Well, Indivisible got started shortly after uh, Donald Trump was elected in 2016. Uh, My husband and I put a guide to uh, congressional activism, to organizing locally to resist Trump uh, on the Internet. Uh, To our total surprise, it went viral. And then thousands of people around the country started to form groups called Indivisible Groups dedicated to both putting the guide into action and more broadly to promoting Uh, progressive policies and a progressive vision of um, our our country. We formed an organization to support them and to uh, bring together uh, all of this incredible energy into uh, particularly national strategies for impact um, and have been working in partnership with this movement ever since.
2: That's fantastic. So you've launched an effort now that's called the Truth Brigade. So can you explain what that is and how it works?
0: Invisible Truth Brigade is a team of thousands of volunteers who are trained in disinformation fighting uh, and who work together to share and amplify positive, authentic counter-messaging. The program really came out of needs and concerns we were hearing from indivisible leaders around the country, especially folks in red and rural areas about the impact of disinformation in their communities. Um, Our team dug into the research, uh, the organizer for Colorado, um, Jody Rain on our team who um, went into the research and tried to uh, contact a bunch of experts and figure out what could a decentralized network of locally led groups and individual volunteers do to combat disinformation. Um, And what uh, we came up with was this idea that um, fundamentally, you know, this is not a problem that is going to be solved by an app or an algorithm alone. Um, But one thing that can have a really powerful impact is people Uh, organizing and messaging within their own networks in ways that dispel damaging narratives and replace them with positive, authentic counter messages. Um, So that's the Truth Brigade.
2: So basically, where where do the edicts come down? Like, how do you decide, okay, this is the piece of disinformation that we're going to focus on? And where where does the fact check basically come from? Does it come from like the top?
0: Well, we work with folks who are tracking um, what is bubbling up in the right wing ecosystem and you know what are narratives that are particularly damaging and particularly in need of countering. So, for example, a lot of work recently has been focused on starving the big lie. Um, so you know, counter messaging yeah. related to concerns about the integrity of the two thousand election and the ongoing efforts like the Arizona um, fake uh, scam audit, yeah. so-called audit. You know, but also things like uh, spreading positive and under- messaging around um, the American Rescue Plan and what's in it, dispelling um, false narratives around HR one, the For the People Act, um, talking about uh, COVID COVID uh, myths and you know spheres around Dr. Fauci. Um, it's a lot of different pieces that are really about kind of w- what's the, the world that people perceive around them. Do they understand and have trust in? Um, society and their networks? Do they um, understand the good parts of what is coming out of Washington right now and the needs for change? And, you know, are they equipped with tools to uh, dispute or to understand, uh, to contextualize some of the biggest Republican false narratives that are coming out?
2: Yeah, it seems like there's no shortage of of disinformation campaigns to choose from.
0: Unfortunately, no.
2: (laughs) With that said, like, what was the straw that broke the camel's back for you to go ahead and 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 create this this effort? Like, was there one disinformation campaign in particular that you felt like the media more broadly couldn't handle and that spurred you to step in?
0: I don't know that there was one uh, individual thing. I think we've all been seeing this rising tide over the last several years and, you know, um, racking our brains with how to fight it. I do think that it's certainly been the case that since the pandemic, the acceleration of a series of conspiracy theories um, around both COVID and you know around the overall QAnon phenomenon, elevated for many folks the urgency of this, and you know many people were coming to us and saying like, "What are we going to do about the the fact that when we call when we make calls in our community, we're getting QAnon stuff back at us?"
2: Well, I I think this is a great idea, and it's also the basis for a lot of what I do. I mean, my 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 channels and everything are really focused on debunking disinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I'm I'm wondering. Is it really tenable to have to do this when we're up against systemic disinformation from bots and even right-wing media, you know, real right-wing media and right-wing elected officials? Like, isn't there a part of you that recognizes that we shouldn't have to create an army of thousands of volunteers just to get back to zero here? Just like none of this benefits us. This is just to level the playing field.
0: Absolutely. I mean, look, this is we are fully aware that this should not be the responsibility of Individuals to combat. Um, there have been real failures in regulation. There have been real failures of leadership in the tech companies um, that have gotten us to this point. Um, they are, they've consistently kind of, or the tech companies have consistently declined to recognize that they have real roles as media companies. Um, they function as such. Uh, they have really absolve themselves of responsibility for many of the damaging things that happen on their platform. And Washington has failed to act in a way that would encourage them to do so. Um, so I don't think anybody feels like this should be the responsibility of organizations like ours or volunteers like the Truth Brigade leaders, but it is where we are. And we're trying to figure out, you know, how can we have the biggest impact possible? And how do you how do you have that impact on a local level, right? Um, fundamentally, what we know is people are more likely to resonate or believe material that's coming from within their own community so the message matters but sometimes the messenger matters just as much and that's what truth brigade brings is uh real genuine messengers located
2: all around the country so i'm on every platform um but the platform that i notice that conservatives have really overtaken you know probably on purpose and with coordinated help from that platform is, is facebook so mm-hmm. obviously the facebook audience skews older you know, that that's the Republican base. Those are more reliable voters. And presumably they would be the easiest marks for a Republican party that that needs marks. Do your efforts pay particular attention to Facebook over the other platforms?
0: You know, Facebook is quite often um, the, the primary platform where folks are sharing this content. Um, and yes, we recognize the same thing that it is. It plays a, a very disproportional role in the spread of misinformation.
2: By the way, what do you think of Facebook's decision to revisit Trump's ban in two years? That sounds painfully well timed
0: for the 2024 election. So uh, yeah. I, I don't think much of it. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I would it's... say more generally, I think that they're they're really abdicating their responsibilities here again, um, leaving the door open to a return is completely inappropriate and incommensurate with the reality of what Trump did, which was attempt to incite a coup. <laughs> That's not a two-year well, timeout kind of thing. I was
2: going to say apparently that apparently uh, the punishment for attempt, attempting to an insurrection on in the U.S. capital is uh, is uh, twenty-four months. So, um, what else are you guys doing ahead of twenty twenty-two more broadly within Indivisible?
0: Well, look, right now we are in the middle of a democratic trifecta. These do not happen very often. They are you know once in a decade, once in a generation, sometimes. They are the moment when you actually can really deliver at the federal level and show people why democratic governance makes a difference in their lives. We've already seen that with the American Rescue Plan. Um, you know, didn't get everything we wanted, but it was a groundbreaking transfer of wealth to uh, middle and lower income folks. It was you know dramatically reduced child poverty, uh, as well as obviously turbocharging uh, the vaccination effort that is helping to get many of our lives closer to normal. Um, Right now, the biggest window of opportunity we have for a generation is um, for us very much passing structural democracy reform, right? Um, We all know that we didn't get Trump out of nowhere. We've been witnessing a systemic Republican assault on the rules of the game uh, in this country, on the basics of our democracy, on the freedom to vote for a very long time. Um, it's, you know, everything from targeting and suppressing voters of color, uh, to going after labor unions, to rigging the courts, to gerrymandering their way into power. Uh, it's, it's really everywhere they can think of to rig the rules of the game, they're going for it. And, you know, if we don't use the power that we have right now to make our democracy fairer more inclusive, and more resilient against these attacks, then we're just going to keep playing this same rigged game. So for us, we are just all in right now on fighting for the For the People Act. We're all in on fighting for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and for D.C. statehood, because these are the kinds of reforms that we need to actually make our country uh, genuinely a representative democracy.
2: So how can we help both the Truth Brigade and Indivisible more broadly?
0: Um, Well, we hope that you will... Uh, Join us in the Truth Brigade if you are interested in volunteering to spread authentic, positive counter-messaging to fight disinformation in your own community. Uh, And we hope that you will join us in taking action to convince Congress that this is a -a once-in-a-generation moment um, to pass game-changing structural democracy reform uh, that will actually help to make our democracy fairer and more inclusive. And there's no time to wait, and you need them all in, too.
2: Leah, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for the work that you're doing and for this new project as well. You've got a lot of people behind you and supporting what you guys are doing. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Leah. Now, one last note before I sign off, and that's that now that Powered by People is officially part of the Don't Be a Mitch Fund, if you haven't yet donated, please consider making a donation. I really want to be able to show Beto and the folks in Texas how much of a punch we can pack. So far, we've raised almost $300,000 in just over a month. That is. Beyond anything I could have imagined. But these organizations are already working. They're already doing their part. They're knocking on doors. They're phone banking and text banking. They're contacting voters and they're getting people registered. Even if you're not out there volunteering, you can help support the people who are. So please, if you plan on donating in the 2022 midterm cycle anyway, your money will go the furthest by donating now. A link to the Don't Be a Mitch Fund is in the episode notes and also on my website at com. Okay, that's it for this episode. Talk to you next week.